0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of Neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I had the chance to sit down and speak with Patrick McCurley, the CEO and co-founder of Decent Decent DecentDAO is a builder collective creating DAO, DeFi, and other Web3 toolings and services for institutional and retail clients. Topics of discussion included how open-source communities can educate and empower individuals, why teams should build on top of blockchain networks, lessons learned from running a business through multiple boom-bust cycles, decent DAOs product offerings, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens— that nothing should be taken as financial advice and that the guests or hosts may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. To check out our disclaimers on tokens and assets held, head over to www.neonewstoday.com. With all that said, I really enjoyed this conversation with Parker and I hope you enjoy it as well. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Parker McCurley, the co-founder and CEO of Decent Dow, which is a Web3 Venture studio. How are you doing today, Parker?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Really excited to have this conversation with you. You have a really interesting background. It was fun digging into where you come from and where you're going. You're a hustler, and I'm excited to talk more about that. But before we jump into where you come from i do want to just ask really quickly so that the listeners can get a sense of who you are you've been around since 2017 so i just want to ask what have you learned with decent dao about the biggest lessons in crypto basically and surviving multiple bull and bear cycles it's no easy feat so i just want to hear what general insights you have before we jump into the conversation
1: Definitely. And it's a great question to start this conversation, Dylan. So thank you. Yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of boom and bust cycles in crypto. Even before I worked in the industry, there were these times of expansion of the ideas and philosophies of Bitcoin. And it's never been a clean or steady growth for cryptocurrency. It's been lots of rapid expansion and accelerated growth and generally a hangover period or a crypto winter, as we have affectionately begun to call it. Yeah, I guess for me, what's been the most interesting was when we first started Decent in 2017, there was a lot of stuff that Adam, my co-founder and I didn't really understand. We would see these websites and promotions for things that people were building on Ethereum during the ICO bubble. And there was all this stuff that just seemed to be over our heads. It just didn't make sense to us. Or how are people actually building this? Doesn't this not actually make sense? And what we found out by 2019 was that none of this stuff was over our heads. It just actually didn't make sense. It was a bunch of bullshit and a lot of hype and storytelling to cash in on what people thought was a good investment opportunity in the time where pretty much everybody was making money in the whole world, right? That was confidence building. And nonetheless, crypto winter for us was really difficult. Like We went from having no business experience to building a small team to having a bunch of clients to having no clients like within a year and a half or so. So what we ended up doing differently in the next growth cycle, which was DeFi summer, really, we chose to grow pretty intelligently. We knew salaries were really high and everybody was hiring and nobody was looking for jobs and I saw these companies that were hiring so many people with these crazy high salaries because we were competing with these big companies like Coinbase to hire people during that bull run. And we had a controlled growth effort and as a result in 2022 when the musical chairs stopped, we were in a really good position. And we had also just raised a bunch of venture capital because we had anticipated a market recession and that it would be really helpful to have more gunpowder for those times. So I think we've just learned how to prepare over the years and to not get too ahead of ourselves. And everyone who gets overinflated during the bull run has a really bad bear.
0: Yeah, I think that's an awesome response. I was really excited to hear, particularly because I myself, came into the space in the 2017 craze and went full-time during the first bear. So I know firsthand what it's like to go through these cycles and now I've gone through my second up-down cycle. So as a company, it's just really exciting to hear, A, surviving and what the survival tactics were, but B, how you guys also deployed those lessons learned. And it sounds really interesting that you were able to garner some venture capital in a year when it was starting to dry up. So congratulations to that. And that kind of leads into why I was really excited to chat with you. Because you're a hustler. You have a really interesting background in the sense that you self-actualized into a developer and then into co-owning a venture in the crypto and blockchain space. So your entrepreneurial background goes back to your college days When you were working multiple gigs, you had a side hustle where you were fixing computers. And this is maybe when you first came about like crypto and blockchain and things like that. So could we start off the convo with just hearing a little bit about your early days and how you got started on this path, largely through the entrepreneurial decisions you made early on?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I didn't spend much time in college or school in general for that part. But yeah, my entrepreneurial journey I guess began when I was a kid or my early teen years I started working pretty young I had a lot of help an example from my parents to that just instilled like a really strong work ethic in me and but you know in high school I always had jobs in the summer I usually did stuff outside like construction or trade type work and during the school year I worked at restaurants and every time I had a job growing up the goal was to like invest it in something of my own, and so I tried all kinds of stuff in high school just to make money. And yeah, the thing that kind of stuck out in terms of it actually seemed to have potential to pay enough for me to pay my bills and stuff was the uh, technical stuff with computers, which like I really never, when I was a kid, I always loved computers, but I never once imagined that that was my career path. In hindsight, it's super obvious, but at the time, I remember telling my mom that I wanted to be a software engineer, and she was like, what, that doesn't sound like you. But no, it was really cool. And yeah, I had a Craigslist ad for just virus removal and computer repair. And I probably had a 50% success rate at this anyway, but it was a good, it was cool. I paid pretty good and I would just go to people's houses and, you know, fix their computer that they screwed up and nothing crazy. And started learning about software development online through websites like Code Academy and Udacity, which are awesome. I think it's so cool that the, I think really the open source software movement inspired a lot of the open academic content that's out there. And I got a email from Max, who is the founder of com, which was localized white pages for more of a rural town in Ohio, as I was in Cleveland at the time. And he's like, Hey, can you work on websites? And I was like, sure, I'll work on websites. And I had very minimal experience doing anything like that, but I knew it's what I wanted to do. So that was my first paying client as a developer and it was a PHP website. And I was in school at the time. I was working all these jobs to get by, but I knew that there was so much more potential in software development. So, and I was just so burnt out and I was like barely sleeping. And I was going to this community college and I was like my second year and during winter break, I was like, all right, like I physically can't sustain this. Like I don't sleep. I'm like working on my computer until I pass out at night. I have three part time jobs. I'm trying to go to school and get grades so I can get like grants and scholarships and continue my education. And I was like, I'm gonna get a job as a programmer like during this break between semesters. So I did, I quit all my part-time jobs. And I was like, okay, I got 45 days worth of money basically. And if I don't figure this out, like I'm screwed. I won't be able to pay my rent. And yeah, I ended up just talking to everybody I could meet about software development. I ended up in a meeting with a payment processing company. And the meeting started as, oh, I build websites. I'm like a freelance web developer. I'll put your payment gateway on my client's websites or whatever. When I looked at the company, I saw that they were hiring software engineers. So I asked their CTO to hire me and yeah, it was my first job as a programmer. And it was pretty cool. And, and that all happened mostly through meetups and through going to like programmer events and just telling people like I have technical skills and I'm looking for work. So I think getting plugged into like local programmer communities and meeting developers that are further along in their career is so important because that's how it happened for me. I've never applied for a job in the tech industry.
0: That's such a cool story. And it just showcases if you have your back against the wall, you can really punch your way up in this industry. And I'm a huge proponent as well of local meetup scenes. 2019 and 2020, I was hosting a meetup a month for the Neo blockchain, because that's where I cut my teeth and the ecosystem I work in mostly. So I love that you built this network and you just grinded your way until you found someone who would say yes. And so, during this time, you're making all these conscious efforts to take two steps back in cutting all the part-time jobs you had to keep you sustained, so that you could take maybe ten steps forward. Was this the time when you were discovering Bitcoin, or had you discovered Bitcoin before?
1: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I I think at this time, I was rediscovering Bitcoin as an engineer. Well, my personal relationship with Bitcoin began in high school. Yeah, I was kind of a troublemaker growing up, and. One time, like a friend of mine, he was like, Hey, I heard about this website where you can buy weed on the internet. And then we won't have to go to older dudes' houses and hang out in sketchy places just cause we want to get high. And that sounded pretty cool. So I heard about Bitcoin through those days. And at the same time, it was like 2008, 2009 and my family and so many people in my life were struggling as a result of the economic recession. And it was just like a crazy time. It was like the unemployment issues, like the housing crisis. There's really impactful in my environment in Northeast Ohio was like the opioid epidemic and this rampant drug addiction. It was like super like gnarly times and definitely a lot of pressure to be growing up in and coming online as like an adolescent. And so I discovered Bitcoin and then I started reading online forums about Bitcoin and I got turned on to the philosophy behind it. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever as like an angsty teenager that all these like super nerdy, but super intelligent people were like online talking about building their own financial system and how it would be the answer to like nothing like 2008 happening again. And that's a way more nuanced conversation than I understood at the time as like a 14 or 15 year old kid, but it was so empowering to read that and tapped into a collective in a way that I hadn't. That was really cool. And I remember when the government famously shut down Silk Road and arrested Ross Ulbricht. And because of my limited technical understanding of Bitcoin at the time, in my head, that meant that like Bitcoin was over. And so I didn't think about it again for a few years. And it was, yes, at my first tech job, I'm working in payment processing. I'm reading Hacker News every day, and I hear about a company called Coinbase, and they called Ethereum. And that's when I got obsessed, was when I heard about Ethereum. That was the thing for me that really turned me on.
0: What time frame was this, like 2016-ish?
1: Yeah, this would be the spring of 2016. I was working as a software developer and I was like really intrigued and learning more about financial technology because that's just where my first job was. And I figured I would end up there. And then I saw not only that Coinbase existed and that there were like companies and an actual, I was like, oh, Bitcoin, this thing is still around and it's like bigger than it was before. And then I read about Ethereum, and it was like two things, and I loved both of these concepts. The first was like, oh, it's I viewed it as Bitcoin as a service, like a Bitcoin framework. We can apply this ideology, the trustlessness, the transparency, the design way of thinking as a decentralization enthusiast to anything, which as like a budding developer, who all I wanted to do was write code. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And the other thing I saw was it was basically like. We're going to rebuild the financial system designed by JavaScript developers. And I thought that sounded so chaotic and cool. So, so yeah, like both of those things really turned me on to Ethereum. And then it was at my next job where I met my co-founder Adam and he took me under his wing as like a person as a software developer. And we became friends over our shared interest in cryptocurrency. He ended up starting a meetup and hosted it together for quite some time. And I would really say that was like the birthplace of Decent was the community events that he and I managed.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I love that your awakening with open source software was through education, going online and educating yourself. For me, it was personally the first time I used Napster I downloaded an album I wasn't allowed to because my parents didn't want me to listen to it and I was able to access it anyways. And that was the first time that a peer-to-peer, decentralized, open network empowered me. And during Occupy Wall Street, as a result of the financial crisis, that's the first time Bitcoin came on my radar. I read about it, didn't really dig in, and, and that was that until 2017. So I'm curious as we delve into... The work that you do, how you work, how your team operates, I do want to scrape a little bit of philosophy and just hear your perspectives on how we can increase or learn to adapt to the levels of privacy that are currently available on open source, transparent blockchain networks where transactions can be tracked and followed. What are your perspectives on privacy and is that something that is of utmost importance at this point in blockchain's life cycle.
1: Totally. Well, well, privacy is super important. And I think I just want to call out, it's cool. I like noticing that like technology basically gives the oppressed the upper hand in any circumstance where the technology is available to both parties. So in your case, you're being culturally oppressed by your parents, right? Which everyone's experienced that. <laughs> So it's cool that you were able to use technical prowess to circumvent those unnecessary regulations. And yeah, for me, my introduction to open source software was through art. My interest in computers growing up was much more of a creative thing through art and music. And that eventually just evolved into software development. So I had to get meta with it. And I found it fascinating that, okay, so you could download the key gen with the drum and bass playing in the background and get cracked Photoshop from Pirate Bay or whatever, or... You could download GIMP, which was like the open source and free alternative to Photoshop. And I'm like, whoa, like these are the two paradigms of like cypherpunks. Basically, it's get together and build our own universe a la GIMP or defy the laws of the universe a la Keygens and the Pirate Bay and Napster, right? So I thought that that was super inspiring. And like, I think a good blend of those perspectives is like a healthy hacker mindset. But yeah, in terms of privacy and crypto, it's really interesting. The proposal was basically like, oh, banks can't be trusted because they're human custodians of capital and their incentives are misaligned with their constituents. So we're going to build this trustless transparency so everyone can be their own bank. And I really dig that for me personally. I'm so bullish on Bitcoin and Ethereum and trust my life savings on those blockchains, right? And I have for a very long time. And... Falling in love with that ideology and design ethos behind Bitcoin. Some of which is pretty gnarly. Like people will always like act in their own self-interest. Like I don't necessarily agree with that on a fundamental level, but it's a very hyper rational doggy dog trader mentality, right? Where like opportunity, isn't really like an ethical question. And so that's like really intense. And I think taking that and like looking at it positively and then trying to shoehorn it into everything is a lot of what's been done in crypto to date. So I, for example, know people who dislike Ethereum because you can build smart contracts that are totally permissioned and administrated that does not resemble how a layer one blockchain works. And like, generally those people are incapable of determining the difference between like smart contract designed to reflect those principles and fundamentals versus one that like isn't, right? There's like a lot of nuance that can be solved with education here but my favorite example of this would be like DAOs where we try to shoehorn just like total decentralization into how to get things done, which is what businesses are for. Basically it didn't work very well. And so I saw this like hyper-capitalist structures that are being built that don't really work in practice. And then you also have the funny thing that I've seen, which is like the real like governance nerds in crypto are like applying like 500, 400, 300 year old systems that like have already failed humanity. And they're like, So it's, there's a lot of people in the space with the ego of, oh, like we're innovating and like building something new and something really exciting. And it's like, really as a space, we aren't caught up to the rest of the world yet. Right? Like we have a lot to do. So anyway, that's like exciting to me. Like why I bring that up when it comes to privacy is one of the things that I heard when I first got into crypto was a bunch of big companies and institutions saying, we can't use Ethereum, for example, because we can't have all of our data be publicly visible to the world. Because that doesn't work for our business. And I was one of the many people who were basically like, we know better. Just give up your way of doing things and do it our way because it's like cool. And it makes sense because Satoshi said so. And then fast forward to present day. And it's like our whole industry is struggling to have enough of an audience and like customer base to actually sustain itself and pay for people to live and continue working on this stuff outside of like pretty unethical business models that I don't agree with or participate in our industry so now i'm viewing the privacy issue as okay we've had these totally open trustless transparent system design thinking in crypto as a result we have data issues all across the board and privacy issues all across the board that need to be solved they need to be solved very carefully in a way that doesn't degrade the security of the types of applications that we're working with in the crypto space but a decent what i see is like large companies and institutions are unable to adopt the technology because they don't have privacy features and permission features that protect an organization of that size. And so we want to build privacy tech that's open and freely available to everyone, but that we are catering and selling to these large institutions that we all want to participate in our ecosystem.
0: Interesting. And it's funny that you rag on DAOs a little bit because you guys are building a DAO product. Which ties into a lot of what you also brought up. So the three products that Decent is working on is Lumen, a DeFi lending product, Fractal, a DAO governance portal, and Sarcophagus, a dead man switch. And I would like to talk about all three of these individually. But before we do, maybe we can just get an elevator pitch from you on what Decent DAO is, and maybe how as a venture studio you guys might differ from an equivalent entity in Web2 or traditional development.
1: Definitely, yeah. So Builder Collective is the phrase that I'm trying to throw out there to describe a style because we are structured a little bit differently from a venture studio. Our goal isn't, we're not like a financial entity that's like investing in new projects with the goal of spinning them out or making them in five VCs, which like is the traditional venture studio model. We're like a collectively owned Product company. So, like, we're building a suite of institutional DeFi focused privacy tools, such as Fractal, such as Lumen and Sarcophagus, that kind of follow this thesis that like privacy missing in DeFi is preventing like real adoption of the technology and some sense of abstraction between the blockchains and smart contracts and the end user is preventing that adoption. Privacy is what's most important to the people at DSET. Institutional DeFi is a market that we know has that need, cares about it, and willing to pay for it, and that we like believe in. And they talk about replacing the banking system. I think DeFi has the strongest chance of doing that out of anything else that's from out of our space. It's not going to be a bunch of like L1 tokens fighting for retail liquidity that make an impact in the world. So I'm really excited when I meet the people in DeFi, especially the people who come from banking backgrounds and know how to do it. Because I'm a humble builder. I'm not like an economist or financial engineer or someone who's like thinking about these systems on that level, but we can get them built and make them work really well, which is sweet. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense for us to build in that thesis of like privacy for institutional DeFi and then it's owned through our token and governed through our token. So like what products we build, how much funding they receive to continue existing cultural decisions, how we operate as an organization, who our leadership is. Those are all things that are going to be managed over time more and more through decentralized governance and voting. But this is why I'm more so ragging on us more than any other DAO. It's like getting there has been really hard because we had a five-year-old company at the time, now almost seven years old, and everybody has salaries, health insurance, comfort, security, a way of doing things that we're all used to. And then I'm showing up and saying, hey, it's going to take years, but if we change from this structure into this structure, we're all going to own it together. I won't be able to take away your equity or dilute you or any of the other shitty things that I can totally do as a CEO of a company in the United States. We'll all be on like a level playing field in terms of ownership and representation and what that means. And we can effectively open source a business. And I got really excited about that. And I still am. But over the last year and a half, I've figured out just like how naive my understanding of not just running a business, but just human beings in general really was. And just one example is this. Like most DAOs and DAO thinking is designed as like a marketplace where, let's say in our case, developers and designers just show up and they're like really good at what they do and they can get onboarded to the projects that we have. And it's this like very like efficient thing that's happening. And like human organizations don't function that way at all they're so complicated and like every interaction i have with somebody that i work with requires tact and focus and nuance that doesn't exist at this point in smart contracts so it's been like a pretty crazy journey to figure out what aspects of the organization will benefit from being open transparent publicly visible being open transparent and visible to a core team requires a universal consensus Sometimes universal consensus is bad. That's why we have like decision makers in society, like judges and CEOs who can just be like, all right, moving on. So yeah, it's, it's been a crazy ride, but I think we're now getting to the point where like, we're running as efficiently on chain that we did off chain, which is cool. And we've been doing all of our money on chain for a year and a half now. Even our raise we did on chain. We don't pay people from a bank account. We're like pretty awesome about that stuff. And now we're working on token gating information and like institutional knowledge and content like project stuff so that it's a little more fluid. And then the goal is to start to make it a little more like people can just participate by having a token or by going through like vetting and invitation process, not through the traditional hiring process.
0: It's interesting that you highlight the recurring theme that I hear with the biggest issues with DAOs, and that is the social layer dealing with people. And how do we leverage the technology to do that? The only other company I have with a mental framework for decentralizing from a corporate model to a DAO is Shapeshift. And they also do something very similar where their whole treasury is completely on-chain. The way they distribute funding is on a quarterly basis through project proposals. And I noticed that you guys also have... Some semblance of that right now, whereas quarterly funding is approved and you guys put to what I assume to be the vote, but I am just garnering that it's mostly your inner circle that holds the voting tokens right now. You guys put forth the quarterly proposals for where you're going to put your time and financial resources. So what does that look like? How do folks get these DCNT tokens or earn the ability to partake in the direction for where you guys wanna take Decent Dow on a quarterly basis.
1: Definitely, yeah. So when we launched, and it was pretty fascinating because we're trying to get everybody who who is ever basically like directly helpful to our company involved. So at launch, the tokens were distributed amongst founders, all contributors from the last seven years or so of Decent's history that are still active or were vested in the company at the time that they left our formal advisors, a bunch of informal advisors that were people that had helped so much over the years and just deserve to be a part of this. So like all of these people who were like a part of Decent for all these years received tokens when we deployed our token a few weeks ago. They're all locked for the time being. So there's no like liquid tokens available. In the market because that's not a priority right now it's we want to build awesome products and get like the right people to have ownership in them and in terms of like how tokens will be distributed over time it'll definitely start with earning i think the first people who receive tokens out of our treasury outside of the people who've already received them are going to be contributors that are coming onto the DAO and participating in some way so Meritocracy is a word that I got really attracted to when I started learning about cryptocurrency and this idea that like people actually are rewarded fairly for what they put into something. And for me, as someone who's entrepreneurial, that's always been not just a financial interest, but like a interest of creative control and ownership in the work that I do and in the direction of the work that I do. So my goal is to reward contribution with ownership. And hopefully if we do that. My thesis is that we'll attract the best builders because I think the best builders are passionate and feel a sense of ownership over the work that they do. And it's important to them on a deep level. And that's how we'll have an edge and maintain our edge as like technical experts in the space.
0: Absolutely. How have you historically gone about getting connected with builders and new builders? Is it through hackathons? Is it through word of mouth? Is it through forums? Is it through Gitcoin? What has Decent's approach been to expanding its network of builders?
1: Everything. We've done all of those things and more. We're not like a B2C product, like a wallet or an exchange where like someone might have actually heard about us at the Thanksgiving dinner table. So for Decent, it's like being known amongst the right people in the industry. Actually, you brought up Shapeshift earlier. That's a great example. Like I love that company so much. And I know so many people from there We've had people on our team who worked at Shapeshift previously. We worked on projects for Shapeshift in the past. And that's just one great example of like how far ethos takes you in an industry, especially when it's like devoid of values. Eric and Shapeshift as a brand have stood for a lot of the principles that attracted me to cryptocurrency in the first place. And also like Shapeshift really inspired I think some of my confidence in like getting into crypto professionally, because I was really, I don't know if this is going to pan out as an industry. And when I saw what ShapeShift had done, I was really just impressed. And it was like a proving case, Bitcoin really being open and decentralized and something that's going to permeate as a result. But yeah, so I think just being really clear about like why we're here in all of those settings has allowed us to attract, I think, the right people and retain the right people. Because the people at Decent like, really love it.
0: Shout out to Shapeshift. That was the first non-custodial exchange I ever used. And when I swapped my Ethereum for another token, it was that aha moment the first time I used Napster. And it was a completely freeing and new feeling to be able to participate with these permissionless open source networks and be able to move assets and value between them in a way that I'd never even thought of before. It was a total eye-opening moment, which is another interesting line I want to pull on. And that is, how are you guys evaluating which networks to build on top of? Like, where does the DCNT token live? And what blockchain network are you guys building on mostly? And if it's not just one, what are the metrics you take when evaluating a new network to build on?
1: So this is an area again where time has humbled me into being more open-minded similarly to shoe warning like decentralization maximalism into everything that i do so decent has always built on ethereum like every project we've ever done was on the ethereum blockchain we've come close to building projects on other blockchains and for one reason or another over the years it never felt right as a company to make an investment to create the level of expertise we have in the evm universe elsewhere it never felt like it was a worthwhile investment for us to take grant money from a layer one that was trying to attract builders or develop financial applications since that's what we've always been interested in at decent i'm a network that i wouldn't personally hold my life savings in and there's only two blockchains that i personally am like comfortable literally holding my life savings on that being said i understand that blockchains like solana have good reasons for existing and have a lot more activity and excitement and adoption than i would say all chains have in the past and so i think today like decent is more open and receptive to building on networks where institutional finance is going to live and where the future of DeFi is going to live, but right now that's still primarily Ethereum. And so that's where we devote our energy and our time and attention to. So it would take a lot of demand and interest and the right opportunity for us to give energy elsewhere, but right now Ethereum mainnet is where the Decent Token lives and all of our applications are deployed to Ethereum mainnet and testnets.
0: You've mentioned institutional DeFi a couple times in our conversation. And one of the reasons why I've really enjoyed being the host of this podcast over the years, particularly during the bear market, is a lot of our guests would be third parties building for traditional financial institutions and or enterprise. And basically, the building's been going on behind the scenes since 2018-2019, even though you're not going to hear JP. Morgan Chase come out in the open and say that they've been working on their own blockchain network for two and a half, three plus years. So what are the sort of relationships that you guys have established with these kind of traditional financial institutions and or enterprise level entities that have been more than just dipping the toes into blockchain, but actually actively building here, if not quietly and silently behind the scenes? And what does the sort of products and solutions that Decent builds for these types of clients or customers, what do they look like?
1: Yeah, this is a great question because it can help explain like where I see our roles as technologists and builders in this. Because this is a very complex space. Like Even the design of Bitcoin required not only an understanding of technology to a very impressive degree. I think the design of Bitcoin is simple enough to be like very genius right and the same thing can be said about the understanding of like just human behavior and economics attached to that same system and so if we're looking at like DeFi, for example well we're looking at two really hard problems we so have a technical on one side which is like building smart contract applications that are very complicated and amassing things like liquidity as a flywheel to power a system like that and even then liquidity not a pure technical issue it's you have to design a system that works that way but then you have to actually get the human beings involved and get the capital involved in the system so basically we have this whole wealth of problems to solve for DeFi to exist and to be taken seriously in the marketplace and i am working towards and my goal for our industry is that for a regular individual person they trust a smart contract more than chase bang right so that is the big picture and how I see us getting there today is not with people like me designing what those financial tools and systems look like, because luckily there are people who are very passionate and brilliant and excited about finance and economics who are taking those risks and are really like the pioneers of this technology in their industry. Two names come to mind that are really inspiring to me that have given me some like advice and guidance, direction, belief on my journey would be Ari Paul from Block Tower Capital and Sidney Powell from Maple Finance. So this is two founders of two very different organizations. One is a massive investment firm, which is like looking at Block Tower and the very short list of funds that I would say are operating at their caliber in our space. When I started Decent, I had like nothing to lose. I was just like creating my career in technology to see somebody with a really impressive financial pedigree in an industry where appearance and standards are so valued to people take that leap into crypto those people who started those funds and have been doing that and building the industry by amassing capital that translates to new ventures and new innovation and new development in our space i find that very inspiring and and bold and courageous and looking at maple and i bring that company up because i just think the brand and the trust and integrity in their brand has been really impressive over the years and they're Commitment to open source technology and transparency has been very impressive over the years. And that's an institutional lending platform. So like on both sides of this, we're looking at people who are not like me and have a very different skill set, very different mindset. And are doing a very important job of bringing the institutions to the space, trusting the technology, looking for the exposure. And again, they're funding this kind of stuff continuing to happen on like the innovation kind of ground floor. So Decent's role in that, right? I'm not the one who's going to get chummy with JP Morgan and like broker deal with them or co-sign anybody building their own private network. But what I can do is solve some like really hard technical problems. What we can do at Decent, so I'm not solving those problems myself these days, is solve some really hard technical problems to allow those pioneers who are bringing this technology to institutions to like actually deliver, right? And so that's what Decent's all about. Decent's all about looking at those financial pioneers who are like redesigning how things like lending and credit and governance of organizations. That's what DAOs are doing. They're like restructuring how ownership in companies works. That's mind boggling. Custody and problems to do with holding digital assets in an institutional environment where like liability is such a complicated and nuanced issue to tackle. These are all things that we want to solve at Decent for those people. So I really view us as, yeah, humbly supporting people who are bringing the institutions to the table. And like, why does that matter to me? I don't wake up and get out of bed in the morning because I want massive financial players to join the industry because that's the point and we'll make a lot of money. It's because I view that as the only option for us to actually get this stuff like elevated so that it can be looked at alongside SoFi or Lending Club as options for the average Joe, right? So I'm really excited about that. I want that to happen.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Sid was a former guest on the show to talk about Maple. So it's really cool to hear you highlight why you think the team and the project's role is really a critical factor in bridging traditional and decentralized financial sectors, institutions, markets, whatever you want to call it. So you really highlighted that Decent is providing the firepower of the thinkers and the builders and the doers. And one of What I took in the research that I did, one of the products that I think your team is building to help provide support for these bridges is Lumen, which to me seems like an identity verification service. So could you talk a little bit about the role that Lumen is providing in the DeFi lending space?
1: Absolutely. And I love talking about our products. So Lumen is a second venture coming out of Decent DAO, and it's a fascinating product. Our goal is to build something in the credit space in DeFi and of course just to imagine where this began and how much soul searching and discovery has occurred as a result of this product development originally our goal was to build a credit product so like we wanted to build like some sort of consumer credit product powered by DeFi and. Basically what our team learned was what I had just expressed, which is credit has existed for thousands of years. Like our team of software developers is not going to be the people who like come up with the aha new innovation and this like ancient human tradition of lending money and taking interest on it. So we're not going to redesign that. What else can we build for this space? And we discovered something really interesting. So in the DeFi lending space specifically on like the institutional side where it's a little like less anonymous and more known. And also the stakes are quite high for participants due to the competitive nature of that market. You have borrowers who are typically borrowing capital to use, to fund their own financial operations. So maybe they're like a crypto hedge fund or trading firm and they're borrowing capital and they're doing so hopefully using their like on-chain activity and their on-chain assets as a means of de-risking that loan to a lender. But all of a sudden we're in this like really tricky place because well, if all of my trades and all of my assets and all of my Ethereum addresses are all like doxed and known to be mine, then now in order to get a loan, I'm trusting that this lender isn't going to reveal that information to all of my competitors, which by the way, they're also doing business with. So that's a really difficult position. And as a result, most borrowers that we've spoken to in the space are more interested in privacy than they are at getting good lending rates. So they pay more for capital to reveal less about themselves and avoid that risk. And so what Lumen offers is using some of the novel privacy technology that's been developed out of necessity in Web3, we can use a confidential compute system so that people can go through this process of due diligence and proving, say, that they have a balance of over X on their Ethereum addresses. Proving that those assets are maybe in like the top 100 market cap and not just like crazy meme coins that people are trading degenerately that like a borrower shouldn't if they're lending capital from an institution and it's a really cool thing that, like, you can go through that process and verify those things are true about yourself as a borrower without saying, this is my Ethereum address. So that's basically Lumen. It preserves privacy where it's very important to, but allows borrowers to reveal things about themselves. So as a result, we're launching this with one of the major DeFi lending protocols that exist. It's super exciting. There's a lot of demand for it. And with our very first lending pool that's powered by Lumen, they'll be offering a lower interest rate that has ever been possible before on the platform. So it's really cool. These sort of
0: technical words you just used to describe the privacy features you guys are leveraging as a result of just open source Web3 blockchain code, are these the same types of privacy enhancing features that you're integrating into Fractal, which is a DAO governance portal?
1: Yeah, very similar, right? So basically our team... Has developed an expertise across like different flavors of privacy preserving technology that exists in the Web3 landscape. So, ZK and confidential compute are two that are like talked about and discussed a lot today. I think for Fractal, we're actually using ZK for the voting mechanism because that's what made sense. Fractal is also a smart contract based application on the Ethereum network, whereas Lumen is like just the traditional web application that analyzes data on the Ethereum network. So those are like two pretty critical distinctions there. So in the case of Fractal, I believe that like the ZK tooling that our team is interested in is like easier to integrate with the application that's built out of smart contracts. Maybe don't quote me on this. It's been a while since I've written any code. But what's exciting is we're taking the same design principle and applying it in Fractal. So with Lumen, it was like, we're going to go to the institutional lending space because that's a part of DeFi that we know is going to be around in the future, we believe in it. We want to support them and we're going to solve their privacy issue. And their privacy issue is safe due diligence, right? We go to DAOs. And similarly, there's a lot of cool DAOs, but I'm really interested in DeFi protocols that are governed by DAOs because, again, like that's where the impact that's important to me is getting made. And that's where I think a market exists that's sustainable and is going to be around. That's where there's a lot of smart and professional people who are like doing the right thing every day. They're not on Twitter, like fleecing people and scamming people, right? So this is where I want to live, right? And we're looking at the DAO governance space, and there's something that Decent has had in common, but uh, contributors don't want all of their money that they get paid to be public knowledge that anyone can look at. That's pretty uncomfortable, not great for the psychological safety of a contributor. And two, it is not healthy for everyone to opt in by default to publishing what they voted for. If you want to wear an I voted sticker and a t-shirt and tell everybody in your town Who you voted for that day, that's totally cool. Everyone's allowed to do that. But forcing everyone to do that is super unhealthy. So what we're looking at for Fractal is how do we solve those two problems and say, how do we protect people's privacy throughout governance processes so that we can still trust that on-chain, we came to this consensus, we made these decisions, we know that the votes are valid without saying Parker voted for X and Adam voted for Y. Imagine if your boss was very loudly outspoken in favor of a proposal and you were not. How unsafe would that feel? Are you going to vote honestly? Even if you do, it's going to take a great deal of anxiety to do so. So that's super uncomfortable. And then similarly, yeah, on the payment side, like how can we, we pay all of our contributors on chain. Of course, being like the person designing the system and the founder of the company, I already knew what everybody was making anyway. So I didn't even think that this would be an issue, but nobody really likes that. So how do we operate in this world where the blockchain as a necessity must be. Transparent, all data publicly visible. the ledger decentralized and distributed, viewable by any participant, but not revealed that detailed level of data that compromises like the social fabric of trust between people that are working together. So that's really exciting for Frackle to do that.
0: Yeah, so Fractal's being utilized for Decent DAO's decision-making process, but is the service ultimately for anybody to yarn up their own DAO and they can leverage Fractal for their own governance purposes?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So eating our own dog food, we built it for Decent DAO because there's some governance complexity to funding and building new projects and staffing them and resourcing them that we thought having a custom framework would be good for. But also because we're focused on privacy technology and our conversations with other organizations in the space, we learned that by making Fractal like the private governance framework, that's a great way for us to stick to our guns on our ethos and our focus, but also do something pretty different that doesn't exist yet in the space.
0: Yeah. And then another product of yours that I want to talk a little bit more about is Sarcophagus, which is a dead man switch. I guess maybe let's just start with why is a dead man switch important? And then further, why is a decentralized dead man switch even more important?
1: Definitely, yeah. Well, Sarcophagus is super exciting because I will say what's different about Sarco to these other projects, Fractal and lumen, those are like decent DAO projects that like we incubated internally and built the scratch. Sarcophagus was an agency client of ours that we just developed such an incredible relationship with their team, their founders, and with the software itself that Decent's been working on for years. And as a result, we're significant owners of the Sarcophagus project, but also just true long-term partners. And it's a project that's blossomed It's a much more synergistic relationship between Decent and Sarcophagus than a typical agency client. So best customer ever, right? (laughs) And why is the dead man's switch important? I'm not the best person to answer this question, but I would say if we go back to applying this pattern of making these systems work effectively in the social fabric that already exists in society. And I think the answer in this case is like, yeah, do I want to trust another human being to carry out my will when I die? And a lot of people would trust Bitcoin or Ethereum more to do that at this point. So. Yeah, it's just another way to eliminate human interference and fallibility from something that's really important to people.
0: Have you guys had any customers or clients that are lawyers or any legal entities that have leveraged Charco for their estate planning processes?
1: So that is our push now. Like We built it as a dead demand switch primitive to be consumed by other applications. And Zach, the founder now, is building... Basically like a product front end for Sarcophagus that obfuscates so that those people don't even necessarily know that they're interacting with applications like Ethereum and Arweave, but rather more of a traditional experience, which is pretty sweet.
0: Cool. Wrapping up and zooming out, really happy to be talking with somebody who's been building here for this is now going on your seventh year. You've been building since 2017. And when I first got into the crypto space, I thought for sure that we were going to have a lot more mainstream adoption today and that there was going to be a lot more just blockchain network usage, maybe even as far as going as some of the early Bitcoin bulls stating that Bitcoin might have even become a world currency by now. I'm not stating that should be the case or should not. But what I am painting the context for is in the years you've been in the space, what are you surprised that has been built and is being used today And what are you surprised has not been built and has not been created that is enabled by blockchain?
1: For me, what was really surprising, actually, like across the board is just like NFTs. Not that they exist because like they make perfect sense from like a why would they would exist standpoint and concepts like NFTs have been around for a long time. but. It's like how they manifested in our society as such a like cultural phenomenon was really fascinating to me because I'm not a part of that aspect of the crypto industry whatsoever. We've looked at NFTs as like a technical implementation detail, but never as like the point of what we're doing being like a collectible or art of some format. So yeah, like that whole thing crazy to me, really fascinating how it made like a social and cultural element to crypto that's way more mainstream than like the people who are into the economics and philosophy aspects that drew I would say like the first class of crypto people into the arena oh and as an offshoot of NFTs I'd also just say like meme coins that's the thing I'm probably most surprised exists and is actually that people actually like care about is the fact that meme coins are a thing is I'm like, no, I'm tapped out when I'm done at work with Decent, so I don't have time to be a degen and whatever with all the meme coins, but it's fascinating. What am I surprised doesn't exist yet? I would say like an adequate replacement for most banking products for consumers. It's pretty shocking. I still get phone calls from people who like lose all their crypto and like bad stuff happens too. We're not at a point yet where it's like safer for a regular person with like average technical aptitude to use this stuff. So. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised that we don't have a full stack. There should be like a medium article. It's here's how to replace all of your financial infrastructure as an individual to be on chain. And like all those things actually like work very well and make sense, but that's what I hope that we're on the road to right now.
0: Well, what did you think of that conversation? I really enjoyed learning more about Parker's background and how he self-started his career as a developer and parlayed that into co-founding and leading a blockchain collective. It was also really insightful to hear his ethos on why him and his team place a high value on building on the Ethereum network and within that ecosystem. And it was really interesting to learn more about the products and offerings that Decent is building for institutional DeFi partners and clients. To keep up to date with our show, head over to www.SmartEconomyPodcast.com. And if you liked the guests that we've had on the show, please don't hesitate to rate us and give us a review. Every rating and review helps us get in front of more people's eyes and ears so they can hear the great guests that we've had on the Smart Economy Podcast. And of course, if you are a NEO token holder, please consider voting for NEO News Today as your council representative. We've proudly been serving the NEO ecosystem since 2017 and will continue to do so by putting portions of our council income directly back into ecosystem growth initiatives. With all that said, we're looking forward to catching you next time.